Okay, we're about to do the most important thing we do here at Soul Revival, which is read from God's Word. Um, so we're starting from um, Ephesians 4, verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the one body, also that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. For from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love, just as each part does its work. Well, good evening everybody. My name's Stuart. I'm one of the pastors here at Soul Revival. And uh, I wasn't here last week for Ephesians chapter 3 because I was preaching Ephesians chapter 3 at our latest um, campus at Ride. And the Ride crew send their love and say hello to everybody. Um, So today we're going to continue to walk through Ephesians and we're up to chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible, keep it open on your laps as we have a look at it. Some of the verses we look at will come up on the screen as well. But I wanted to begin this evening by saying uh, the week before our week away, which is a couple of months ago now, July, a month ago, I've lost track of time, this year seems to be flying through, Uh, just a a few weeks ago, uh, the week before our annual camp, I went on a a conference, actually I went on three conferences in one week, it was quite the conference crawl. Uh, They were all three uh, academic conferences for people who were writing in the field of mission. And my supervisor that I have uh, for my PhD, Darren, invited me to each of these conferences, so I got along over to Ride and Parramatta and uh, attended these conferences. Well, these conferences were a bit different to what I was used to um, because they had such an eclectic mix of different Christian thinkers uh, from across the board. Um, I would consider myself an evangelical uh, Bible um, student of the Bible, uh, but many of the people who were at the conferences would consider themselves liberals. Not liberals as in voting for the Liberal Party in Australia, but liberal theologically. So it was an interesting week because not only did I hear papers from different perspectives to mine, but I also got to meet people who had a different perspective on the Bible to me, which on the whole was quite a positive experience. There were some awkward moments. 
as you can imagine. But um, people who have a more liberal view of scriptures see that as part of um, their decision-making, whereas I would see the word of God as always my authority in all my decision-making. And so we talked about that, and I, I got friends with a, uh, one guy who's an Anglican from Melbourne, and he's a liberal Anglican from Melbourne. And the reason I got to sit with him and have a drink with him at, on the last day of the conference was because he said to me, Stuart, I am so perplexed. He said, you're such a nice guy. How could you be a Sydney Anglican? <laughs> and I said, you know, I've never had anyone say that to me before. I'm perplexed why you would ask that question. And you're such a nice guy, so why don't we go and have a, a drink? And so we did. We had a drink, and we talked about lots of different things. And as you do, you, we talked about, oh, I don't know, um, we talked about everything from uh, mo mostly his questions, you know, from the role of women in ministry in the Sydney Diocese to issues around same-sex marriage, uh, issues around the Bible, and we just had this really pleasant talk. But as we were talking, we just, both of us were disagreeing on all, all, all these little matters, not aggressively. It was actually quite a nice night, just talking and thinking together as a couple of uh, people studying in mission. But what I ended up saying to my friend from Melbourne was I said, can you give me a bit of an idea of where you come from? Like, how do you read the Bible that would get you to a place where you would take some of what the Bible says is relevant today, but also leave, a, uh, leave aside lots of things that I would think are important today? How do you get there? And so he introduced me to an academic and a theory, which I'm going to just briefly touch on, which you will immediately forget. You probably will forget. But I'm going to bring it up because I think it's important to know that when you have someone who has an opposing view, often they have a reason for their view. And I think in order to have a conversation about faith, I think we have to be good listeners and we have to listen to other people's perspectives, right? So what I did was I wanted to listen to his perspective, and you might not remember all this, but try and... Try and pick up some of the vibe of where he's coming from, okay? So when, when I ask my friend, how do you read the Bible? He says, well, there's a, an approach that I think is really important, which is called the redemptive moment, redemptive moment reading of Scripture. And apparently one of its key thinkers is a man named William Webb. So the idea of William Webb is that as you read Scripture, what you see is... He argues, anyway, that as you read through Scripture, you see the ethics in the Bible changing over time as the culture changes. So he says that God doesn't somehow move in his thinking, but what William Webb believes is that God, in his pastoral sense, accommodates himself to meeting people and society where they are in their existing social ethic and then gently moves them towards something better. Now, if I lost you there for a second, what he's saying is God meets the people of Israel in the Old Testament, for example, in Deuteronomy 13.10. He meets them in what is quite a violent society where capital punishment is normal in their world. And in Deuteronomy 13.10, we read, Stone them to death because they tried to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So there's a... Uh, direction to the people of Israel to stone to death someone who's done the wrong thing. But William Webb would argue by the time you get to the New Testament, the societies have changed and they don't stone people to death anymore. So the New Testament doesn't actually argue for stoning. So Jesus doesn't actually say in his teaching, stone anyone to death. And that's how William Webb tries to accommodate why the Bible's changed a bit in his mind between the Old Testament and the New Testament.
And that's called the redemptive moment. And so what my friend from Melbourne has then thought is, well, if the flow of God's logic is to keep moving us towards a better ethic, if the society gets better and gets a better ethic than the Bible, then let's move to that. So that's why my friend says that in Melbourne there are Anglican bishops who are arguing for uh, churches to marry same-sex couples. And that's why in many churches around Australia there are Anglican bishops who are arguing to marry same-sex couples even though the Bible is quite clear that marriage is for a man and a woman. And I said to my friend, that is so helpful. (laughs) Now I understand a little bit of where you guys are coming from. And he didn't ask me what I base my thoughts on, but I told him anyway. (laughs) So I paused for a moment. He took a sip of his drink and I took a sip of my drink and I waited for him to say, so Stu, now I've told you what I'm thinking with this redemptive moment. How do you read the Bible? Well, he didn't ask that. But I said to my friend, do you mind if I share mine? And he said, this was a really cool bit. He said, let me say that I think I know what you're going to say. And I said, okay, give it a go. What do you think? He said, you just take the Bible really literally and believe it word for word and everything it says in the Bible is what you do now. And I said, well, have I got a gift for you? (laughs) Because it's not quite like that. Yes, we read the Bible and trust that it's the word of God. But we have a framework. If your framework is called redemptive moment, our framework is biblical theology. Now... I've fully lost you now. There's giggles going on. Come on, Stu. Let's go. Let's get on to the passage. Well, it's going to help us because the passage is actually going to help discern between my position and my friend's position, I think. Because what we say in biblical theology in Sydney Anglican churches is uh, there's a man called Goldsworthy and he has a typology or an approach to the Bible that sees the whole, all the events and the, and the stories in the Bible as associated with God's rescue plan for the human race. And so God has rescued us from the fall that was initiated by Adam and he's called the people of Israel and then all the saving works of the people of Israel are shadows of what he is going to accomplish in Christ. So when God saves the people of Israel out of Egypt, that is pointing us to Jesus who saves us from the slavery of sin. And so the whole of the Old Testament isn't a redemptive moment that is slowly moving us forward towards a proper ethic. It's actually showing us how we as human beings can have the biggest problem in our life fixed up, which is sin. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should perish Uh, sorry, whoever believed me should not perish but have eternal life. So the idea of the biblical theology is that the Old Testament points to Christ and what he does on the cross for us because on the cross he died for us to take the punishment we deserve for our sin. And that was a once and for all sacrifice that means if we trust in his sacrifice, we are forgiven and we can go to heaven. And all of the New Testament looks back to that and also looks forward to a time where we won't have any sin anymore because we'll be united in heaven with all of God's people. So you can see the two readings of the Bible are going to bring you to very different ethics or what we like to call hermeneutics. How do you apply the Bible to this world? It's always good, I think, to go back to first principles when you're talking to someone who has a different opinion to yours. Instead of just going on Facebook and throwing off a sentence or two saying, you're an idiot, how could you believe that? 
it's always good to say, let's have a coffee so I can understand why you even think that. That's kind of what I think was the wonderful thing about this conference. Now, my friend and I have parted ways and we've got different opinions on how to read the Bible, but we're staying in touch. In fact, he texted me today to say that we have a mutual friend that he went and met up with today and he reminded me of how much he enjoyed our chat. So disagreeing doesn't have to be enmity and, and arguing and getting angry with each other. It can be an exploration. So what we need, though, as we explore, is we need to find a way forward, don't we? And what is really interesting is that sometimes the ways people find to go forward are different. Now, some of you will be aware that this week, uh, and, and it surprised me as it has surprised many people, but this week um, there's been announced that Glenn Davies is heading up a new diocese called the Diocese of the Southern Cross. It's a new Anglican diocese. And the diocese has been set up for Anglicans all over Australia who are in primarily liberal dioceses that hold to this more redemptive moment history. If there are churches in dioceses that hold to that more liberal reading of scripture who believe in biblical theology, then this diocese is going to give them a home. Because around the world there's been this big argument within the Anglican church that is tearing the Anglican Church apart between do we read the Bible as a story of salvation that is still true now? Yes, there are some cultural moments in the Bible, but the Bible is actually speaking to us universal truth that holds in each new generation and is actually a beautiful, majestic vision of a new humanity that every generation needs to know afresh. Is that the way to read the Bible? Or is it, well, as the ethics of society grows and changes, so God's will for us to move forward with the society changes? Well, the liberal dioceses are moving in that direction in Scotland and in England, in America, in Canada, in New Zealand, and in many parts of Australia. In Sydney, in Africa, in Asia, Adelaide, some other, Armidale, some other places, those that hold to the biblical theology have got together in something called GAFCON. And that is a, a worldwide communion for people who think that the Bible story is speaking fresh into each new generation rather than God moving us to a new ethic. Well, this week, the tensions within the Australian Anglican Church have exploded in a sense where some of the bishops in Australia haven't affirmed that marriage is for a man and a woman and so Glenn and some others have started this new diocese for those who can't sit under that leadership. Interestingly, it's been in the media. It's been talked about in cafes. It's been talked about in schools and universities. I'm quite surprised, a bit chuffed actually. I sometimes think that no one really cares what Anglicans do because we're the most boring denomination in the world, but everybody seems to be interested this week. By the way, as an aside, this is a great time to share your faith with a friend. <laughs> Just tell them you're Anglican and they'll go, whoa, you crazy guys. <laughs> Look at you being all, you know, divisive, arguing, splitting. There's, there's newspaper articles, TV shows, all sorts of stuff. People are talking about it. But the big question underneath all of that that is very serious for us tonight is should Christians be in unity with one another and overlook our differences or should we actually hold to the purity of the gospel and our belief of the gospel? And when those two things come into conflict, how do we decide what to do? 
Well, John Stott says that there are two great passages in the New Testament describing in detail how Christians should live in unity. One is John 17, and guess what the other one is? Ephesians 4. Isn't that awesome? As I said that, I got a little chill down my spine because you may not realise that we set this passage at the beginning of the year. We had no idea that all this argument about unity would come up today, but here it is, and God has given us this chapter on a platter. As we've just been ploughing through Ephesians, God knew that this would come up tonight. And so what we're going to look at tonight is this passage in Ephesians, and we're going to see that there are two themes in this passage. One in the first half is, called, is all about unity in the Christian church. The second is about purity. Now here's an invitation to reconnect if all that other talk about politics within the church has left you feeling a bit cold, particularly if you're not a Christian here tonight and you've come along to understand Christianity, I want to say tonight's a great time to come because we Christians are not perfect. We argue with each other. And that doesn't make us hypocritical. It just actually backs up what the Bible says about us. We're all sinners. We all find it hard to get on. But it causes us to be humble and causes us to come before our living God and ask him for help so that we can work out how to live. And if you're here tonight to kind of check out Christianity, listen along to how we talk about this problem because it might be helpful to you to understand a little bit about Jesus. Well, the first part of this passage in chapter 4 is uh, in verses 1 to 16. And in verses 1 to 16, we hear Paul's teaching on unity, as John Stott says. And this section shows us that unity requires four things, and they'll probably come up on the screen. Let's see how it goes. Unity depends on the charity of our character and conduct. Number two, unity arises from the unity of our God himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Three, unity is entrenched by the diversity of our gifts within the body. And four, unity demands maturity of our growth. So let me take you through those four things briefly. First of all, unity depends on the charity of our character and conduct. And we read about that in chapter 4, verse 2, which will come up on the screen. As Paul's about to talk about unity, what he starts off with is he says, be completely humble and gentle be patient, bearing with one another in love. I couldn't think of a better foundation for unity than that sort of a character in a person. If someone is completely humble, that means they are not going to think of themselves as better than the person that they're talking with. And if there's an argument, they're not going to assume they're right straight away or that they're better. They're going to listen. And think about that as it um, is influenced by the word of God. Now, that humility was something that was despised at the time of writing. In the ancient world, humility was considered weakness. Humility was replaced by pride in the old world, in the world of the Greeks and the Romans, and often it was enforced by military power. Ideas were enforced. So if someone was to be a humble person looking for unity rather than division, that meant they're not the kind of person that would impose their ideas on someone else. They're more someone who is kind of comfortable with who they are. And you meet people like that from time to time that are specially gifted in humility, and it's quite attractive, isn't it? When you sit and talk with someone that is really humble, you kind of can go away from that conversation even thinking to yourself, I'd like to be a little bit like that person. 
But if you meet a proud person, you go away from that conversation thinking, I'm going to find a way of disagreeing with that person to prove them wrong. You see the difference? So if we're going to go for unity, humbleness is a really important part. Humility is actually essential to unity and pride lurks behind all discord. So true and animosity between people, there is pride. And those pride wars can break out into real hot wars, as we can see with the Russians and the Ukrainians right now. There's a lot of pride going on in that situation. The other one is being gentle. What does gentle mean? Well, actually, you might be surprised that being gentle is not weak. Being gentle is actually really strong. Gentle is a character attribute of somebody who is strong who can keep their strength under control. Let me say that again. Gentleness is the attribute of someone who is strong, but they can keep their strength under control. I love to see people ride horses. I know Bree loves riding horses. I can't see Bree past the light, but she loves a horse and have a ride in the snowy mountains. Isn't it wonderful when you see those mighty animals galloping together with, with a whole heap of other horses, with people on their backs with a tiny little piece of leather and just guiding them with a bit in their mouth and these powerful horses are under control. Well, the idea is sometimes we can invent an amazing piece of technology to control a horse but sometimes we have a bit more difficulty controlling ourselves. But if we can be strong and under control, that is actually a good thing for unity. Third and fourth qualities go together in a pair, and you can see them there, patience and forbearing with one another. Many of the parents here know how that patience can get tested when you're tired or sick and your kids are actually beside themselves. Sometimes you, you just pray to God and say, God, I don't have patience to deal with this. I've really got to get off to work and this kid doesn't want to put on pink shoes. They want yellow shoes. I'm really struggling. <laughs> but patience causes forbearance, doesn't it? In lots of circumstances, which again builds unity. But most of all, love is mentioned in that verse and love is the final quality which embraces the preceding four and is the crown and sum of all those virtues. Since love is... At the end of this sentence, it's actually got prominence here. The motivation to actually be at unity with other people comes from a deep love for that person, particularly when they're not particularly lovable today. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Isn't that a beautiful picture? All these things are helpful for unity, but love binds it all together. Well, if unity is bound together by our character, the second thing Paul says in this uh, little paragraph here is that unity arises from our unit, unified God. And you see that in verses 3 to 6. It's going to come up on the screen. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Those of us who are a bit older like me might remember the U2 song that sounded a little bit like that, called One. Remember that song? Well, the idea here is that the body is actually the church. And that was explained to us in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 23. And the unity that the body of Christ has is from, from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is inviting us into the same unity that he has with Jesus and the Father. For the Lord Jesus Christ 
is the object of our faith, our hope, our baptism of all Christian people, and he is the head of the body, you see. In order that the, the, the persons of the Trinity, God Father, God the Holy, Son, God the Holy Spirit, are one, we are given that invitation to exist in that same relationship in this call of Paul's from verses 3 to 6. You were called. See there in verse 4? You were called to be a part of this. We're invited in. Isn't it lovely when you come to someone's house and before you even knock on the door, they know you've, they've seen you walk up the path and as soon as you go to knock on the door, the door opens and there's a big smiling face. Come in, come in. That's the sense of this passage. Come and enjoy the unity that God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have enjoyed in eternity. Be a part of that. That's a really beautiful part of this passage. And that's not all. The third thing, the unity is enriched by our diversity of gifts from verses 7 to 12. Have a look at Ephesians 4 verse 7. But to each of us is given, um, sorry, to each of us grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. So when someone does put their faith in Jesus, they are given spiritual gifts that they can use to build up other people. And if you look down at verses um, 11 to 12, um, after Paul is already just there in a brief section, he, he quotes Psalm, Psalm 68 and talks about the authority of Jesus to do this. But then in verses 11 to 12, he says this. He says, God gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to the church, to the body. And these gifted individuals are to raise up and equip, in verse 12, the people for works of service. Now, you might have heard some people call pastors ministers in churches. Hands up if you've heard of someone who's a pastor called a minister. Well, I'm called a pastor. Some churches call them ministers. Why did we choose the title of pastor for Soul Revival Church leaders? Because you are the ministers if you are here and you're a Christian. I'm not. I'm here to equip the ministers. The people who minister in the church are the body of Christ and the people forementioned are actually there to, to build up and help the ministers of the gospel to build up the church for gifts of service. See that there in verse 12, to equip his people for works of service. The fourth thing here, unity demands maturity of our growth, and that's in verses 13 to 16, which again might come up. Until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, what I just want to say here is, if you're getting lost in a lot of detail here, what I'm trying to say is that unity has a base, it comes from a good character, it then gets active in the church by people serving out of good character and there's a sense of growing, a sense of strengthening, a church that starts kind of weaker and gets stronger over time. The church is almost like a gym where people actually go, not just pay a membership fee. When you go to the gym week after week and you go at least twice a week, you find that your body starts getting stronger and this is what unity brings the church. When the church is unified, it gets stronger. And here in verse 13, it says here that we mature as Christians. And in the section, Paul goes on to say that we're no longer infants in verse 14, swept back and forth by the changing waves, blown here and blown there by every wind of teaching, by the cunningness and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. See, in verse 3, Paul was talking about maintain unity, but now in verse 13, he's talking about not maintaining unity, but attaining unity. 
Now, I don't know if you're awake enough on a Saturday afternoon to see the difference between those two things. I hope you are, because it's pretty exciting. Because the idea of attaining unity is one day we will all be Arnold Schwarzenegger. I can go to the gym as much as I want and I will remain Stewie, 54-year-old guy trying to have a crack. Not Arnold Schwarzenegger, that some of you younger ones are probably not going to know, but was, is one of the iconic bodybuilders of all time. He's the one from Terminator. I'll be back. That guy. You know that man, Mountain? There's Sam Tagatizi who played for the Sharks, who I used to look up at and all his dimensions were twice mine. My thighs, I measured my thighs up against his arms and his arms were as big as my thighs, Sam Tagatizi, who played for the Sharks. And I said to Sam once, I've said this before, but I delight in this, I said, can I just try and tackle you one day, Sam? And he said, I'll break you like a twig, Stuart. You one day will be, <laughs> and I'm sorry they're two male examples, but didn't we say a couple of weeks ago we're all sons of God, that we're all inheritance of the same promise? We will be perfectly unified one day and we will be mature. That's the idea of unity. So what's happening with disunity in the church at the moment? Isn't that going against everything that's here? Well, you get a glimpse there that something deeper is going on, that maturity stops us being tossed back and forth by the waves. What's that talking about? Well, it's explained in the next sentence. Blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning of craftiness of people. When I was having a drink with my liberal friend from Melbourne, I, I went to Ephesians 14 and I said to him, how do you know if the ethics of today are actually better than the Bible or if they're just the latest teaching that blows past like a breath of wind and next year something else will come up and then in a decade something else comes up because rather than God moving us forward in redemptive moments like this, God's like on a boat that's just at the mercy of the culture whatever the latest teaching is. And he said to me, well, in your schema, how do you work out what the truth is? And I said, because of the second part of Ephesians. Because this is the thing. Unity is not the highest value in the Christian church. The purity of the gospel is. It's the gospel, the good news that Jesus gives us, and having a purity in our faith that is more important than unity. In fact, it actually builds unity and that's why the second half of this letter, this chapter, is about purity. Now, we don't have time to unpack this today, but I want to give you a few highlights. In 17, this is what Paul goes on to say. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So if you thought that that phrase of being moved around by different fashions of teaching was strong, Look what he says in verse 17. Don't be like everybody else in the world that doesn't know Christ. Look, there's helpful things that you can learn. I love going to Cronulla Sharks and learning about well-being. It's fantastic. There's this thing called a well-being world, wheel rather. It doesn't come from Christianity. It's not out of the Bible. It's really helpful. It says that overall a person needs to have a balanced life. You need to be able to eat McDonald's and KFC for example. That's part of your wellness. <laughs> you need to eat milk chocolate and dark chocolate and you need to have all the carbs present in your diet to be a balanced person. That was a joke, in case I've lost you. <laughs> but what Paul says is, if we just go and listen to all the latest trendy ideas, 
How are we going to become mature? We're going to be a little kid that sits on the floor with scattered toys around us, picking and choosing whatever's brightest and makes the most noise. Isn't it better to become mature and to actually realise that according to the biblical theology, the Bible offers a new humanity and a new way of thinking about the world in every generation. That's the new teaching. And there's nothing better than it. In verse 18, he says, There are many who are darkened in their understanding and separate from the life of God because of ignorance, and that's what's due to them is the hardening of their hearts. In verse 20, However, that is not a way of life that you learned. To be made new in the attitude of your minds is what you need to seek, and that is through reading God's word. And that gives you a new self, in verse 24, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. See, there's more that he goes on to talk about there, how the Holy Spirit actually is grieved if we actually don't listen to his new truth. But here we're encouraged to put on a new self that is not dictated by a redemptive moment of the latest ethical teaching. It is the moment Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and then defeated sin and death and ascended into heaven and gave us the Holy Spirit so that we could be spiritual people. The only way to be spiritual is to accept Christ. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul unpacks that at great length. But all the other ethical things that come in this, this little section are things like don't let your anger lead to sin. Don't steal anymore. Work with your hands. Don't let unwholesome talk come in, but build others up. You see, the ethics that we have as Christians comes from the renewed mind we have as we read about Jesus and how he sets us free. So what I've said to my friend about this Diocese of the Southern Cross is what the people who have set it up are endeavouring to do is to seek unity but hold on to the purity of the gospel. And I say that with great sadness because it's sad when we don't agree. And I know some very, very godly men and women have been striving for decades to try and hold the Anglican Church together. For unity's sake. But if there are people and bishops who are teaching people not to actually listen to the authority of God's word, that new teaching, then there are going to be people who can't be in that diocese because of their conscience. And so Glenn Davies, who was our Archbishop, has now become the Archbishop of those who want to remain within the purity of that gospel message. Now, I'm going to finish there tonight. Thank you for listening to such a dense and direct sermon. But I hope that, if nothing else, you'll have heard tonight that Paul is saying that God's desire for us is that we be united. Even when we disagree, please listen to each other. Within the church or between other churches, within our ideas about Christianity or between other ideas of Christianity, listen. Be humble and gentle and patient. You see, that foundation can be so helpful so that you don't leave an argument in fisticuffs, but you leave an argument sad and humble, praying that God helps us to work out how to get back together again. And I just want to say, if that's brought up anything for you tonight, that you might have a disagreement with a brother or sister in, in the church at the moment, don't despair, because the Holy Spirit is at work in us, that if we remain humble and we look for the character that we're told. We won't grieve the Holy Spirit, but we will actually help one another to be built up in the faith.
Let me pray to finish. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, at this moment in our culture that you'll get rid of all bitterness. Help us to be kind. Help us, Lord God, to put on the new self that you've created us to be like you, to live in true righteousness and holiness. And I pray for anybody here tonight who's still thinking about being a Christian. And I pray that uh, there might be an opportunity after tonight's talk to talk to someone about this and dive deeper into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.